This evening, as we continue our study of Paul's letter to the Romans, I will be reading from chapter 3, beginning at verse 10, and reading through verse 20. Romans 3, 10 through 20. I would ask the congregation to stand for the reading of the Word of God. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. If you have ears to hear, please hear the Word of God. Please be seated. Let us pray. As we attend now to this Your Word, O God, we realize that with the whole of humanity, You have dragged us before Your throne of judgment. You have examined us and found us wanting. You have stripped us of all pretense to righteousness and laid bare before Your eyes our iniquity. O God, help us to take seriously this indictment that it may drive us to the cross and to the sweetness of the gospel. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. We saw in the first chapter of this epistle that Paul indicated the announcement of the revelation of the righteousness of God that is by faith. And we saw that the theme for the whole epistle was the outworking of the gospel of grace. And yet, so quickly after that good news announcement, Paul changed his focus to the revelation of the wrath of God, which is made manifest against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then he explained to us that the essence of that ungodliness is found in our universal action of suppressing the clear and manifest self-disclosure of God and exchanging the truth that we know for a lie and giving ourselves to idolatry, which then results in plunging us into moral ruin. Paul went on to bring both Jew and Greek under this indictment, showing that we are not redeemed through the rituals or the programs of the church, and strips away from us any hope of self-justification. Now, in the text that I've read already, 
we see Paul coming to the conclusion that he wants us all to understand before he declares the gospel of justification by faith alone. But again, I say to you, no one is really ready to hear that gospel until we first understand this indictment that comes down to us from God Himself. Now, dearly beloved, you understand that this view of our humanity that I've just read is on a collision course with everything your culture tells you about your natural condition. Humans in our day profoundly disagree with this assessment of our condition. But I'm really not interested tonight in what we as fallen people think of ourselves. What we must listen to is the assessment of our condition that is made by God Himself. And so let's look together at this section of the text. I'm going to back up to the last portion of what I read last week. We ended last week with verse 9 of chapter 3 with the question, what then? Are we better than they? And the answer to that question was, by no means, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Now, let that conclusion from last week serve as introduction for our study tonight, the conclusion that Jew and Greek, which means everybody, is under sin. Now, what does the apostle mean when he says that we are in our natural condition under sin? Well, beloved, it means that sin is not something that just scratches us on the surface, something that is tangential to our lives, but the weight of it is so heavy that it presses down upon us, and we are under this weighty burden of guilt as a result of our sin. The force of what Paul is saying here is that because of our sin, each one of us is exposed to the judgment of God, being under the verdict of the law. Sometimes in the colloquial expressions of our society, if we're doing well, if we're succeeding, we say that we're on top of things. Well, with respect to our performance of obedience before God, we're not on top of it. We're underneath it. And the law hangs like the sword of Damocles over our necks. We're under this awesome weight of sin, under the burden of our guilt before God. Now, one of my desires when I talk about this is that we might come to a greater capacity to feel the weight of that burden because we have become experts at denying it, of dodging it, so that we don't feel the burden. Not one person in a thousand has a complete and full comprehension of the weightiness of this matter. And so now Paul, in order to buttress his claim and to defend this grim assessment of our condition, rests not on his own insights or his own experience, but he goes back into the pages of the Old Testament and the, and the quotations that follow are not found in one particular place in the Old Testament, but Paul is giving us an amalgamation of several texts, most of which are from the Psalms, some also of which are from the prophet Isaiah. But everything that he repeats here in verses 10 through 18 
is taken from the sacred Scriptures of the Old Testament. And he sets this before us in a kind of chronological order where they're not just loosely laid together, but the second judgment follows from the first and the third from the second and so on through this indictment. And so, if we were in God's court right now, and the judge came into the court, and the charges against us would now be read aloud in the courtroom, the charges would sound like this. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. Not one person may be found on this planet who, when judged against the standard of God's righteousness, can be seen to be righteous. And yet it is our self-description of being righteous that leads us to suppose that we can pass the judgment of God on Judgment Day based on our own performance. I mentioned before that when we ask the diagnostic question in evangelism, if you were to die tonight and stood before God and God said to you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Ninety percent of the people who are asked that question answer it by giving some kind of works righteousness answer. They say, I would say to God, well, I've tried to live a good life. I belong to church. I gave to charity. I never did anything really bad in my life. Beloved, that is a pretense of righteousness that has no substance to it. And so the Word of God lays it bare for what it is. When it gives this universal appraisal, there's none righteous. It's a universal negative proposition. There is none righteous, and in case we don't get it, the emphasis follows, no, not one. It admits of no exception in this universal judgment. Now, following that, since there's none righteous, it would follow irresistibly that there's none who understands. And understands what? What is in view here is a failure to understand the things of God. If we as fallen creatures don't want to have God in our thinking, dismiss Him from our thinking, develop a worldview that suits where we are in our performance in this world, ignoring the Word of God, how could it be anything else but that we would fall into a complete inability to grasp or to lay hold of the truths of God? Who among us in the flesh understands the sweetness of God? Who among us, even in our converted states, if indeed we are converted, hunger and thirst to understand the deep things of God? How many professing Christians have you heard say, I don't need to study the Scriptures. I don't want to get involved with theology. I want to have a childlike faith where this very Word tells us to be babes in evil, but in understanding, be adults, be mature. But we don't want that. We want to learn everything else in this world except the things of God, and we're satisfied to not have any understanding of these holy things. 
There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. Did you hear that? No one in his natural condition seeks after God. The seeking after God is the business of the believer. When you become a Christian, that's the moment where your quest for God begins. Prior to your conversion, you're a fugitive from God. You don't seek God. You flee from God. That's why it drives me crazy to hear this whole movement in our society today to restructure worship, restructure the whole activity of the church to accommodate seekers, to be seeker-sensitive on the assumption being that people who are unconverted are desperately seeking after God, but they can't find Him. He's hiding. And so we in the church are going to structure worship and teaching and preaching and everything else to the pagan to help him find what he's desperately searching for but just can't seem to uncover. Now, isn't it strange? Isn't it a foolish thing to structure worship for unbelievers who are seeking after God when the Bible tells us there aren't any. Ladies and gentlemen, that's stupid. It's, it, it manifests a failure to understand the things of God. If we understand the things of God, then we'd know that there are no such things as people out there who are unconverted seekers of God. Yet, it seems to us, from our perspective, that we have friends who aren't believers, and we say, my next-door neighbor is not a Christian, is not a believer, but he's searching. Why do we say that? St. Thomas Aquinas was asked that question on one occasion. and says, why is it that it seems to us that there are people who are not Christians who are searching for God when the Bible says no one seeks after God when they're in that unconverted state. Aquinas said, here's why. Here's the answer to that. We see people all around us who are furiously, feverishly seeking for purpose in their life, searching for meaning to their existence, involved in the pursuit of happiness, looking for relief from guilt to silence the pangs of conscience that haunt them, looking for peace, looking for lasting satisfaction, and not being consigned to the state of living lives of quiet desperation. Aquinas said, we see people searching for the things that we know can only be found in Christ. And so we make the gratuitous assumption that because they're seeking the benefits of God, they must therefore be seeking God. No! This is our dilemma as fallen creatures. We want the things that only God can give us, but we don't want Him Yes, we want peace, but not the Prince of Peace. Yes, we want purpose, but not the sovereign purposes decreed by God. We want meaning found in ourselves and not in His rule over us. Do you see that? And so we see these people who are so desperate, and we say, well, they're seeking for God. No, they're not seeking for God. How do I know that? Because God says so. No one seeks after God. How desperately was St. Paul searching for God when he was on his way to Damascus to destroy the followers of Jesus? He was no more searching for God than I was 
when God stopped me in my paths one night and brought me sovereignly to Himself. And I knew then I didn't come to Christ because I was seeking Him. I came to Christ because He sought me. No one seeks after Christ until they've first been found by Christ. And that begins the seeking of the kingdom. That's why Jesus says to those who come to Him, seek first now the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and everything else will be added unto you. But that only is meaningful to the believer. How many times do you hear the evangelist say, Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. If anybody hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and meet with him and sup with him. And the evangelist says, Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart. If you open up the door, Jesus will come into your life. If you'll just seek him a little bit, you will find him. No. The words knock, and it shall be open unto you. Seek ye the Lord while he may be fine. Seek and you will find. Jesus says, I stand at the door. He's talking to the church, he's talking to believers. It's believers who are called to seek the Lord while He is near, to call upon Him while He is near. While we're in unbelief, we don't seek God. This is a test, pop quiz. Do you seek God? If you do seek God, That's a clear indication that you're already in the kingdom. If you don't seek Him, that's a good indication that you are not in the kingdom. There's none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. Isn't it interesting that the Christian community, before they were called Christians, which was a a term of derision used for them at Antioch, they were first called the people of the way, because Jesus identified Himself as the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Do you believe that? Do you believe there's only one way? The culture tells you there's many, many ways. God says, no, there's one. Jesus said, there's only one way. I am the way. No one comes to the Father but through me. But you see, if, if there's none righteous, and no one understands, and no one's seeking after God, where would you expect them to go except out of the way, to miss the road, to miss the path? And so the indictment continues. There's none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. And if they have turned aside they have no understanding of the things of God, if they're not searching after God, if there's not any righteousness, what's the net results? They have together become unprofitable, futile. I once was writing a book on the glory of Christ, and I was using a word processor computer. I didn't understand all the mechanics of backing up the hard drive with, on soft disks, and I had finished a hundred or so pages to that book when my computer crashed, and I didn't have it backed up. You know how a writer feels when he has produced a hundred pages and he loses them? I had a friend who worked for five years on his doctoral dissertation. He was in the last days of completing his dissertation, which he kept in his office at the college where we taught, when a fire burned his office to the ground. He lost it all. Had to start all over. Nothing, it seems, is more tragic than to labor as hard as you can and see the fruit of your labor be destroyed. Amount to nothing be unprofitable, be an exercise in futility. But that's what God says 
is the bottom line for the richest people in the world who know not Christ, for the most successful people in the world who know not the gospel. They have become futile, unprofitable in all that they do. He concludes this section of the indictment by saying, there's none who does good. No, not one. You mean, well, it's one thing for me to say I'm not a righteous person, but surely you're not going to go over the edge here and say, I don't, I don't ever do anything good, that I've never done a good deed prior to my conversion, and that no pagan ever does anything good. Haven't we seen pagan people with no profession of Christ lay down their lives for their brothers on the battlefield, mothers who sacrifice themselves to save their children? Calvin calls this civic righteousness. And from our perspective, these are good deeds. But if you define goodness the way God does, then the verdict comes out a little differently. Here's why. To understand goodness in biblical terms, there are two aspects to a good deed. When God weighs your actions to see if they're good, He says, first of all, to be good it has to correspond outwardly to His law. If God requires honesty and you were honest, you didn't cheat on your test or on your income taxes and you didn't steal, that's good that you didn't steal. It's good that you didn't cheat. And so, so far, so good. You've got half of it down. You've gotten that external conformity to the law of God. But when God evaluates our behavior, beloved, He not only judges the outward action, but He connects to the work the inward motivation. So, for, from God's perspective, for somebody to do good in His sight, they not only have to do something that externally conforms to His law, but that that action must be motivated by a heart that is trying to please God, a heart that loves Him with the whole heart, the whole mind. And if that's the case, if that's the standard of a good deed, then even after my conversion, there's a pound of flesh in everything that I do. I have never in to my whole life loved God with my whole heart of you. Have you ever loved Him with your whole mind? If there's anybody in this room who's loved God for five years with your whole mind, would you please come up here and take over this job for me? Because you will give us much greater insight to the Word of God than I can possibly give, because I'm somebody who's never loved God with His whole mind. Well, part of it, part of my mind. But all of it, all my strength all my heart. And is that not the great commandment? That to fail in this would be the great transgression? There's nobody in this room who's loved God with his whole heart and his whole mind for five seconds. And if that's the, the standard by which God is going to judge our deeds, then you see why he would say, nobody does good, no, not one. You remember the rich young ruler that came up to Jesus and he was very enthusiastic. He interrupts Jesus and says, good teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus say? You have to make a decision to follow me. No. He said, why do you call me good? Why did you call me? Why did you address? You don't know who I am. It's not that Jesus is denying his sinlessness. It's not that Jesus is denying his perfect obedience. But he knows that that man has no idea who he's talking to. And he's just throwing this word good around liberally. 
So Jesus said, excuse me, why are you calling me good? Don't you know that only God is good? Don't you know that there's none righteous? No, not one. Don't you know that there's none who does good? Not one. Why do you call me good? And then he says to him, you know the commandments. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, and so on. And it's like the rich young ruler says, whew, is that all? Is that easy? All these things have I done from my youth. I can check off the Ten Commandments every single day. And I can tell you, Mr. Jesus, I've kept every one of them since the day that I was old enough to remember and to learn them. I've never stolen. I've never committed adultery. I've never killed anybody. And so Jesus says, that's remarkable. You know, you're the first person I've ever met who's done that, who's kept all these commandments from your youth. You don't need me. I come to call sinners to repentance. The healthy have no need of a physician. You're going to go straight to heaven. You don't need to pass go. You won't collect $200 if you've kept the law since your youth. You've got it made. That's not what he said. Nor did Jesus say, oh, no, you haven't. You haven't kept the Ten Commandments since you got out of your bed this morning. He doesn't say that. He just says, oh, okay. Hmm. Let's start at the first commandment. First commandment by Presbyterian counting, Rebecca. <laughs> Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Let's try that one. Oh, why don't you go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, take up your cross and follow me. Whoops. Is that the first commandment? You mean I have something that I've put ahead of you? And the man walked away sadly because he had many possessions. But the saddest thing about that encounter, beloved, is that Jesus met a man who really thought he was good. Obviously, the rich young ruler had not been present on the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus explained the depth of the import of the Ten Commandments. The man had a superficial understanding of goodness, a superficial understanding of the law of God. Now, to prove the point, to bring it home to practical application, Paul gives us a list of metaphors to describe the extent to which we are not righteous, the extent to which we have gone astray, the extent to which we don't understand the things of God, the extent to which we don't do good. And in this relentless indictment, he begins to use parts of the body, principally the throat and the mouth and the tongue, to show our corruption. There's none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open grave. Remember when Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are like whitewashed tombs, whited sepulchers on the outside, you're whitewashed, clean, pure, but inside, underneath what can't be seen by the naked eye, is filled with dead men's bones, where there is decay and corruption. So the Word of God here says, if I open your mouth and look down your throat, I see death. I see corruption, corruption that comes from the core of your being, up that throat and out your mouth. That's the metaphor that is used here by Scripture, your throat, 
an open sepulcher. He moves from throat to the tongues. With the tongues, they have practiced deceit. The Bible says of us that all men are liars. We are deceitful by nature. We do not love truth. We use truth only when it advances our self-interest. In the meantime, our lips are full of deceit. And he goes on. The poison of asps is under their lips. The adder or the asp is one of the most deadly reptiles in the world. Not only is its bite fatal, as it was in the case of Cleopatra, but it's one that's exceedingly painful. And the description that the Bible gives of us is that underneath our tongues are sacks of venom, like pit vipers is the way we are, because the words that we use destroy, they maim, they poison, they're vituperative. Poison of asps under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. You know, I grew up in, in Pittsburgh, and I maybe heard my father curse once if he hit his thumb with a hammer. He may have said a word that he shouldn't have said. And yet, I live in a world today where I know lots of people who can't speak a sentence without vulgarity, without blasphemy. Practice professionals whose mouths are full of cursing. You look at television and you see the ratings of the movies that they show on TV or in the movie theaters, and, and, and they will give these little symbols, you know, or, or the, the rating system, it's PG or it's R or whatever it is. And then they'll put these letters on the side, AC, adult content, adult content, and then AL, adult language, that is mature language. And you know when you see that symbol, AL, that you're going to get an earful. You're going to wonder how in the world people who made movies before 1950 were ever able to communicate anything (laughs) in those films. When now, the gratuitous language is part of the warp and woof of our society, where we take for granted that we are people whose mouths are full of cursing and blasphemy and filthy talk. That's who we are. This is our nature. Not that have mouths that let a bad word slip every now and then, but the mouth is filled with it. That's paganism, barbarianism, whose mouth is full of cursing, and bitterness. Now from the throat, the mouth, the lips, the tongue, he moves to the feet. He said, their feet are swift to shed blood. In our bitterness, in our propensity for violence, we run for violence. Can't wait to spill blood. 
What kind of being would be worthy of a description like this? Destruction and misery are in their ways. Oh, you say, Paul, don't, don't quote these antiquated texts from the Old Testament from that vengeful God of Yahweh back there. That's pre-modern society, pre-scientific age, pre-enlightenment thinking. Now, we live in a sophisticated world today where well, there isn't any misery. There isn't any destruction. Read the paper. Watch the news. You won't see any images of destruction or of violence. Not in this civilized country. The way of peace they have not known. Somebody did a calculus of violence and warfare for the last 2,000 years of Western civilization, measuring the number of wars, the magnitude of violence that was in it. The most peaceful century in the history of Western civilization was the first century, the century that witnessed the coming of the Prince of Peace. The second most peaceful century in human history was the 19th century. That's why people became so optimistic at the end of the 19th century. They thought that through science and education, warfare was over. They didn't anticipate that there was more violence and more warfare in the first quarter of the 20th century than in any full century before that. That's before World War II. That's before the slaughter of millions in the Soviet Union or in Red China. It was before Vietnam, before Korea, before the world, the wars that have broken out across every aspect of the globe in the last 25 years. Far and away, the most violent century in human history, recorded history, was the 20th century. Because the way of peace we have not known. And now the conclusion of this biblical rehearsal of God's assessment comes to the bottom line. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the scariest thing at all, is that the pagan is not afraid of God. And of course, the fear here is, includes within it the sense of reverence. We are by nature, beloved, irreverent people. We have no sense of awe no desire to honor God, to glorify Him as God. And when we don't, we don't give it a second thought. We're not afraid of God by nature. I want to tell you something. God scares me to death. Even though I know I am redeemed, I know that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, as we will see later on in this text. But God is holy, and I know that. And even though I'm covered by the Savior, I'm still frightened at times by the character of God, and with good reason. I was on a plane once in a bad storm, and I was nervous. I was holding on, white-knuckled to the seat. And my friend next to me says, what's the matter with you? Don't you believe in the sovereignty of God? I said, yes, that's why I'm afraid. Because I know God. 
can sometimes put His hand upon us to correct us and chasten us. And I know that if He put His hand on my shoulder now with pressure and bore down, He'd have every right to do it. And He's worthy of my fear. And He's worthy of my reverence. That's why the wisdom literature of the Old Testament says that it's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. And this is the incredible thing, that people who don't fear God think they're smart. They think they're wise. When if a person has no fear of God, there's not an ounce of wisdom in their heads or in their hearts. It's the fool, the Bible says, who says in his heart there is no God. It's the fool who has no fear of God. So finally, Paul says after this recitation of biblical texts, now we know, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world become guilty before God. Beloved, every time the New Testament describes with any vivid imagery the scene of the final judgment where God's verdict comes down in His courtroom, every single time, the description of the response of those who were there on trial is silence. I had a friend who did his Ph.D. in Harvard in, in neurological studies, advanced studies in the operation of the brain, and he said, you know, the more I study the brain, which is an amazing thing, so much more uh, incredible than the, than the most vast computer system that we have in this world, that every experience that you have is recorded in your brain. Every word that you've ever spoken is recorded in your brain. He says, you know what I think? I see that on the last day, God's going to take our brains out of our head, put them on the table there in the courtroom, and plug this recorder into it and punch rewind. And we're going to have to sit there and listen to our own brains rehearse everything that we've ever done everything that we've ever said in, in secret, every thought that we've ever had in our head. Prosecuting attorney doesn't have to say a word. And after that recitation takes place, what would there be to say? What use is there in arguing with God when God says, I have weighed you in the balance? and found you wanting. I can't find any goodness in there. I search your soul. I don't see righteousness. I see, I see the poison of snakes in your mouth. I give you my law, and you break it at every point. That every mouth may be stopped. The whole world may become guilty before God. Therefore, here's the conclusion. And here's the conclusion of this segment of the epistle that no sane person dare miss. Hear the conclusion. Therefore, the apostle says, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. If you're paying attention to the law, you know it'll not justify you. You'll know you'll never be able to get into heaven on the basis of your works because the law reveals to you your filthiness. So the law teaches us the conclusion that by the works of the law, no flesh, no 
person. No human being will ever be justified in His sight. So why, oh why, oh why do people continue to hope that their good deeds are going to be good enough to satisfy the demands of God? Despair of that, dear friends. Don't for one second rest on your works as the ground for your justification, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. Verse 21 begins with my favorite word in the New Testament. It makes all the difference in the world, in heaven and in earth. I call it politely the apostolic however, because the apostolic but does not seem appropriate. (laughs) But those three letters, B-U-T, are the difference between heaven and hell. And finally, after this relentless indictment that you've had to endure all these weeks, we're coming to that place where Paul finally says, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. Now, the apostle is saying, it's time for the gospel. Enough of this bad news. But listen to the bad news that you might hear the goodness of the good news which God willing will begin to examine next Sabbath evening. Let's pray. Oh, Father, when You measure us by Your standard, we know that You don't judge on a curve, but we are found lacking that all of our righteousness is filthy rags in Your sight. Father, by Thy Spirit, crush any hope in our breast that would think that we could earn our way into heaven. Help us to despair altogether of our flesh and any pretense of righteousness that we think we possess, and turn our eyes to the Savior who alone is good, who alone is righteous, whose righteousness alone can avail for our need, for without that righteousness, all that we have is unprofitable. Amen.